This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. Parzvaychi, everybody. We're dealing with a Pusik that I've had, I've had something on for a quite a bit. And the truth is, is that this is something that I'm going to be really careful about saying. I'll explain as I go through. But the Pusik is, in Parak Memtas Pusik of Zion, Binyamin Ze'ev Yitrof. Binyamin is a wolf that tears everything apart. Baboker Yochalad, in the morning he eats carcasses, in the evening he divides up all the spoils. This is who Binyamin is. It's the only Pasuk that Yaakov says about his son Binyamin, Binyamin Atzadik. It's the only Pasuk that deals with him as a bracha. Obviously, we deal with Moshe Rabbeinu a little bit later on. There's clearly something going on here. So, first, before we start, there's no doubt that whenever these brachas are being said, they're referring to the famous. I guess you can say children from that Shevet. In Binyamin, you have quite a few people who are famous. There's Ehud ben Gera. Ehud ben Gera was the second Shofet of Klau Yisrael who killed Eglon Melech Moab. There's Shola Melech. Shola Melech, obviously the first king of Klau Yisrael before David Melech, after the Shoftim ended, who was anointed by Shmuel Anavi. Ehud ben Gera, we know very little bad things about. Shola Melech, there were some things toward the end that seemed a little bit interesting. Mordechai and Esther, Mordechai and Esther, both of them, from Shevet Binyamin, both of them involved in something when it came to, when, obviously, when it came to the saving of Klal Yisrael. And really, that's about it. If we're dealing with people that we know from Shevet Binyamin, even though Shevet Binyamin still exists with Shevet Yehuda nowadays, all of Shevet Binyamin were together with Yehuda in the split of the kingdoms. It was Yehuda and Binyamin and everyone else, all the other Shvatim. So Binyamin is without a question still around, but people who are known as being from Shevet Binyamin were really relegated to those four and very few other people. So Rashi starts off and says the reason why Binyamin is known as a wolf is because of the times of Pilegesh Begiva, which was an unfortunate time in the times of Shevet Binyamin, there were, well, the basic idea is that the Pelegesh got lost in a city called Giva by Binyamin. She got lost. She was sent out of her house. She was taken forcibly by many of the men there. The people forcibly did stuff to her until she died by the morning. By that time, she was left at the doorstep, right? The Ish Levi, who was married to her, came outside, realized that she had died, cut her up into little pieces, sent her out to all the different parts of Klal Yisrael, and that started an uproar. The people yelled at Binyamin that they should give the lawless men to them, that they could judge them. And Shevet Binyamin said, no, 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 it's our deal. We're in charge. We're not giving this over to anybody else. We're going to judge our own men. To the point where Klal Yisrael decided they were going to fight Shevet Binyamin. Shevet Binyamin versus the rest of Klal Yisrael. You had 400,000 warriors on one side versus 26,700 people on the other on Shevet Binyamin's side. 400,000 on one, 26,700 on the other. And at the end of the day, even though Binyamin won the first two battles, killing 40,000 people from Shevet Yehuda and from the other Shvatim, at the end of the day, all of Shevet Binyamin was almost completely wiped out. To the point where not just the men of the army, but the women and the children and everybody was completely wiped out to the point where there were six hundred men from Binyamin left and no one left, no one else. No women, no children, no older people, 600 men and that was it. 
Well, Klal Yisrael then swore, not knowing that the wives and the children had been dead at the time, but they swore, none of us will give our wives to Sheva ben Yemen. Nobody's marrying their daughters. I should say daughters instead of wives. Nobody will marry their daughters off to Sheva ben Yemen. Nobody's marrying them off to them. And they swore about it. They swore in front of everybody, Aldas Rabin, which can never be martyred. We are not giving our daughters over to Sheva ben Yemen. So now they were in a quandary. What do we do now? No one can marry Sheva ben Yemen. There's no one else alive. We're left with 600 ben Yemenites who had no ability to marry anybody else. What do we do? What do we do about this? So what happened was they found the Yavish Gila, didn't come, so they took 400 girls from there because the city had to be destroyed. There were 200 men left. And in Pelegish Begiva, what happened at this point, there were 200 men who grabbed their own wives, who went and found their own wives by Shiloh. They were dancing outside of Shiloh, the predecessor to what we now know of as the tuba of celebration, that back in the day the girls used to dance around. They were singing songs. It was the end of Tinus. And these men went and grabbed their wives from the 200. When the people of Shiloh complained, we didn't want to give our daughters over. All of Claudius felt, don't worry. They said to them, don't worry. You didn't give it over. You're not going to be blamed for this. The, these 200 men needed somebody, and that's that. Says Rashi, since the 600 men of Shevet Binyamin, after Pelagish Begiva, 200 of them grabbed their wives, he said, this is what we refer to when it refers to the wolf. Just like a wolf grabs its prey and drags it along with it to its lair, Shevet Binyamin grabbed their wives and brought them home. As if taking it home, there was only one person who didn't grab a wife on that day. The wife grabbed him. The woman ran up to him and grabbed him because he was so good looking. It was Shaul HaMelech. Shaul HaMelech was the only one that was different, right? It was the other way. The Rabbeinu B'chaya calls this Derech Pshat, that this is Pshat in the Pasuk. Not a Drush, not a Medrush. He says Derech Pshat is Binyamin Ze'ev Yitro. That Binyamin is a wolf that grabs. Binyamin is a wolf that grabbed during the times of Pelagish Begiva. And that's Pshat, says the Rabbeinu B'chaya. Now the Ibn Ezra says, the wolf refers to Shevi Binyamin because they were so powerful. They were so powerful, they were able to take on all of Klal Yisrael combined. That they were able to kill 40,000 men, even though they were seriously outnumbered. 26,700 to 400,000. They had, what was it, an eighth? No, more than that. Uh, One-sixteenth of the rest of Klal Yisrael. And yet, nonetheless, they were able to fight against Klal Yisrael and win two battles. That shows how strong they were. They were truly a Ze'ev, a wolf that was willing to fight. There's another way of understanding this Pasuk, another way of looking at it. Maybe it means that Binyamin was so super strong, you were able to tear up, he was able to tear up wolves. Maybe Binyamin, here's how you read it, Binyamin was so strong, Ze'ev Yitroph, he tore up a wolf. He tore a wolf apart. And although that sounds weird, you do see these words being used. Shimshon, when he was near, whatever it is, he tore apart the lion like one would tear apart a, a goat. Now, I've never tried tearing up a goat, and I'm not so sure that's a really a real good suggestion. But the concept of tearing it apart appears by Shimshon. So maybe Binyamin were just as strong. Binyamin had the ability to tear apart these carcasses the way that they did it over there. Maybe that's what it represents. Says the Gorarye, no. Says Rashi over here, and he's explaining how Rashi understands it. Binyamin's the aviotrope. He is the wolf that tears apart. Not that he tears apart wolves, but rather that he is the wolf that tears apart. That's the concept behind it, and that's how the Gorari understands how Rashi is explaining it over here. The Rabbeinu Ephraim says something really crazy about this. Each one of the Shvatim's bracha had a pay after. You know, sometimes you'll see in an art scroll, Chumash, you'll see the little pay or the Samach, 
and the pay means you start the next paragraph on the next line. Samach means you leave a little bit of, a, of an opening right there. There's like, you stop and then you start a little bit later. There's a stuma and a psucha. Every one of the shvatim, after they got their bracha, there's a pay. There's a psucha. Each one, after Ruvain, after Shimon and Levi, after Yehuda, there's a pay. The pay, pay all the way through, except for Binyamin. Binyamin leads right on to the next paragraph, right on to what happens right afterward, and there's no pay whatsoever. Not only that, every single one of the Shvatim, when it goes through the bracha, it mentions a vav. It says, Vizos Yehuda. It says, all of these people, every single one of the Shvatim, it says, Uli Yisachor. Each one, it says the vav, except by Binyamin. Binyamin, there's no vav. It starts off Binyamin, Ze'ev Yitrof, as if he's separate from the other Shvatim. Says Zohar bin Ophrayim, because that hints to what happened by Pilagish Begiva. All the Shvatim are on one side, Binyamin is on the other. Binyamin is the last one mentioned given a bracha, the last one there without a vav. He's totally separate from everybody else for this reason. There's something completely different about him, and therefore it's mentioned as if he's completely wiped out, as if there's going to be nothing left for him. That's the Rabbi Ophraim, that's all dealing with that first shot in Rashi. Levusha Ora asked the question, and it's such a pushed kasha. How is this a bracha? Do you call this a bracha? Why would you call it a bracha when it's considered almost like a curse for Klau Yisrael? This is the worst thing that happened. Pilegish Begiva was a horrible situation. A horrible situation in which Binyamin almost was wiped out completely. This is not what you want as your epitaph, as your bracha that you get forever, that everybody's going to remember you as. Everyone remembers you as the guy who lost everybody by Pilegish Begiva except for 600. That's ridiculous. That should not be what everybody remembers him as. Says so what's the bracha? What's Yaakov Inu saying? What's Yaakov Inu doing when he says this line of Binyamin Sevi Trope as if there's a real bracha here? What could it be? So Levush answers this question, but he says an awesome, awesome idea over here. He believes that the Rishonim never said any of this. That the Pilegish Begiva thing was never said by anybody. Rashi, the Rabbeinu Bachaya, it's all a mistake. You'll see this sometimes. When people don't like the pshat that are given by Rashi and the Ramban, they'll say, there's no way the Rashi wrote that. There's no way the Ramban wrote that. This is a pshat in which Levush says, there's no way Rashi said it. He didn't say it. It's a whole paragraph in Rashi. It's not there. The Rabbeinu Bechaya calls it derech pshat, says Levush Not true. None of it is true. There's no way that happened, and it didn't happen. The real drush is the other drush of Rashi, but skip this one. If you have it in your Rashi, says Levush put it in parentheses, throw it out. It doesn't belong over here. That's absolutely crazy. Rashi, however, seems to say not like that Levush He says later that Yehuda was given the strength of the lion and Binyam was given the, the power of a wolf. It sounds like he's okay with saying the power of the wolf is this, but says Levush that means he was powerful. Not, nothing to do with Pilagish Begiva. You would never tell Binyamin about Pilagish Begiva when you're trying to give him a bracha. But his Talmud, the Tzeda Lederech, he says, Benchilas Kavodo, over Mordechai Yafa, the Levush Ora, he says, Benchilas Kavodo, Rashi took this from the Medrash Tanchuma. Ra- the Rabbeinu Bechai calls it Pshat, there's no way there's a mistake over here. But he does not answer why it's considered a bracha. And I'm going to leave this as a question, as out there for anybody, if anybody wants to answer this here or in the video, why in the world would Yaakov in his bracha tell Binyamin, you're going to have a lot of children that will all die, You'll be left with 600, and that's it. My only thought is, because one of those 600 was Shoal Melech, to show Binyamin that his children are truly special and will fight for one another, 
And from there will come the king of Klau Yisrael. That's my only answer that I really have, that I think that he's telling them that, that don't worry, even though they died, and even though Binyamin was almost decimated, they weren't, and you still got a Shalom Melech. That's the only real answer I got. I just, I, I don't know. The Lovashor's question is probably the best one. Why in the world did that happen? Okay, number two. Rashi says the wolf could also be a reference to Shola Melech. Shola Melech himself, who grabbed the kingdom from David Melech. David Melech was supposed to have the kingdom. He grabbed it away from him and fought against many of the enemies of the Jews. Moab, Ammon, Plishtim, Edom. He fought against all those enemies and destroyed them all. So Benjamin Zaviotropis, he's a wolf that destroyed everyone he went up against. If he went up against any by Bolker Yochoad, is that he took spoils in every one of the wars. But Erev Yechalak Shlal, he gave out those spoils to all parts of Klal Yisrael because he didn't want to keep it for himself. This is all referring to Shaul HaMelech. The Rashbam adds, Binyamin joined Yehuda in their kingdom. Even later on, when Yehuda needed help, they turned to Binyamin to help them. Binyamin was filled with warriors, as we said before from the Ibn Ezra, they were filled with warriors. That's the shot behind it of what we're going over here. Rashi, the, Rash, the Sforno, the Rabbeinu Bahai, and the Ibn Ezra all say, morning and evening refer to the times of the kingdoms. The morning refers to the beginning of the kings. Who was that first king? Sholomelech. Sholomelech in the beginning of the kingdoms, in the morning, so to speak, went ahead and destroyed everybody that was out there, took spoiled from them, that was that. And at the end of the kings, Mordechai and Esther. Mordechai and Esther at the very, very end, when the kings are all gone, Sidkio Amelech is the last king. And after Sidkio is gone, Mordechai and Esther are there taking care of business in Persia, in Mede, doing whatever they need to do to save the Jews during the times of Achashverosh. So there's Binyamin at the beginning and Binyamin at the end. But Boker, Ula Erev, both of them, somehow they get involved. The Shach says, and if you like Gematria, you're going to like this. If you don't like Gematria, you're just like it anyway. Binyamin Zaviyatrof plus the three words is the gematria of 464, which is Zehaya Shol Amelech. The Rabbeinu Ephraim says, Erev Yechalak Shalal is 816, the same as Hain Esther Amalka or Vizem Mordechai Yehudi in Misparkatan. Right? And Shlal is the same gematria as Zehaya Bime Mordechai, that this was during the days of Mordechai. Clearly, there are Ramazim that this is happening by Mordechai and Esther. Clearly, there are hints that are given by the Rishonim that this happened, and it's referring to what happened by Mordechai and Esther. The Nitziv doesn't understand this at all. The Nitziv doesn't like it at all. The Nitziv says over here, when it comes to Mordechai and Esther, it says, They didn't touch the spoils. You're saying over here, that they divided up the spoils. There were no spoils by Purim. How could you say at the end, that never happened. They never divided up the spoils. Even though they got the house of Haman, they received the house of Haman and Haman became his and they owned that land from that point on and everything was theirs. Nonetheless, you can't call that Yechalik Shalal. There were no spoils. If anything, Mordechai kept it for himself. He didn't divide it up to anybody else. He didn't give it out to anyone. So what does this mean exactly? Instead, he says, this Pasuk is entirely talking about Shol. Says in the Nitziv, it's all about Shol Amalek. At the beginning of his reign, he was able to take in the spoils. But at the end of his reign, he couldn't. He had already gone crazy. The people were still taking spoils from David Amalek's victories, from what David Amalek was doing. Again, the problem with this Nitziv is why would Binyamin need to know in his bracha that Shoal was going to have an awesome beginning and an ignominious end and a bad end? Why would you want that? Why would you want to tell him something like that? There's no reason to mention that in the bracha. 
Same question that we set up above from Levusha or on Rashi is the same sort of question that we can ask on the Nitziv. The Tzrua Mor also says that even when Shola Melech, his son, set and he fell in war, he was able to have a great chilek with Sadiqim lost at level. That it means, Ula Erev, and toward the evening when he died, Yechalek Shalal, he'll get his reward in Olam Haba. Because the very end, Shola Melech had a choice. Can you imagine? Knowing you're going to die. He was told by Shmuel and Navi the night before, you will die with your three sons in war tomorrow. And Sholem Alech still went. Who would go? If you knew you were going to die if you go to war, would you go? But Sholem Alech knew he had to die. This is what's going to be. And because he was willing to go to war, even though he knew Hashem was going to let him die during that war, he was still willing to go and still fought and still did everything he could during that war. For that reason, he still gets a chilek in Olam Haba. He still gets something out there. And that's what Erev Yechalek Shalal says the Torah more. He gets something up there in Shemayim. So with Baboker, Yochalad, he himself got something. Erev Yechalek Shalal, he, he didn't lose anything. The Chidah says an amazing idea. He says, Yaakovinu never bowed down to Esav. We know that, right? Yaakovinu did not bow down to Esav. When he bowed seven times, who did he bow in front of? Kaddish Baruch He had a Kaddish Baruch right there. Okay? The Shechina, as if the Shechina was in front of him, even though Esav was there. The Shvatim didn't realize that. So what did the Shvatim do? The Shvatim bowed down to Esav, seeing their father do it. They said, oh, if dad did it, then we can do it. So all the Shvatim bowed down. Yosef, although he never bowed down, but he did stand in front of Rachel, and he showed some sort of hachna toward Esav, and therefore there's something with Yosef. Binyamin was the only one to not bow down fully, to not go involved, get involved whatsoever. Says the Chidah, Binyamin is the one who stands for something special. When the Shvatim bowed down to Esav, they caused a pegam in their yerech. Yerech is the thigh. The thigh is what they used to bow down. I don't know if they went all the way down on the ground, like Pishri Adayim Baraglaim, or if they just went like that, like you do to a king. I have no idea what they did. But says the Chidah, there was a pegam in their yerech. Nevuah, at that point, became hard to come by. It was difficult. And if you notice, by the way, you don't find many Nevi'im. From the times of the Shvatim on, we don't see that the Shvatim were Nevi'im. We know they were awesome people. They most likely had Ruach HaKodesh. But Nevi'im, do you know that they were Nevi'im? We don't see it. Later on, we see Moshe Rabbeinu was a Navi. Chazal tell us that Aaron was a Navi three times. And Amram may have been a Navi or had at least Ruach HaKodesh. But then, little by little, you had Ruach HaKodesh. It's hard to find Nevi'im. There was Moshe, there's Yoshua, And then who? There were Nevi'im, but it was hard to come by. It wasn't a lot of people. By the times of Shaul HaMelech, he was able to fix that problem. When Shaul HaMelech, it says that he was from Binyamin, who did not bow down to Esav, when he was made leader of the people, he was able to fix that Yerech. And from that point on, Nevuah was free throughout Klai Yisrael. There were tons of people that were able to do that. Then he caused the Begam. What was the Begam that he caused, that Shaul HaMelech caused? He didn't destroy Amalek. He left somebody alive. Who was alive at the very end? Come on, guys, the name of the king of Amalek. Agag. Left Agag alive. And because he left the king Agag alive, he caused a begam in something else. He fixed the begam of the Yarech. But he messed up when it came to Amalek. So his, I don't want to say grandchildren, but his descendants, Mordechai and Esther, they weren't direct, they were indirect. But from Shevet Binyamin, fixed that up. How did Mordechai and Esther fix that up? They fixed it up, simply put, by destroying Amalek. Once that happened, Binyamin was the Ze'ev Yitrof. He tore apart the Yerech. 
the leg away from his enemies and took it on for himself. He was mekalkel, however, the evening, he lost what he's supposed to have. He lost that idea of Amalek, and Mordecai was able to get it back. And that's the idea of what it means. There was Shaul and Mordecai, and what the Pasuk is referring to, says the Chidah. Okay, Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar says that Derech Medrash that Zev is a gematria of 10. Ze'ev, Zion Aleph Bez is a gematria of 10. Because he grabbed 10 children away from Yosef. Those who know, Yosef Atzadik was supposed to have 12 kids. He only had two that we know of. Those 10 kids were given to Binyamin instead. So Binyamin was able to grab the 10 children from Yosef. Because what happened with Yosef Potiphar was Zleika. He was able to grab them. The Panim Yapos talks about this quite a bit, but I'm going to skip it. But that he goes through. The Orachim HaKadosh agrees that it refers to Shaul and Melech, but he also says it's not really a compliment. We're dealing with somebody who ate his spoils in the morning, but in the evening lost his right to rule Klal Yisrael. In the evening, he was no longer as special as he could have been. He was Shaul HaMelech, but he was missing something. There's something that was gone. From that point on, it was evening for Klal Yisrael. Their avonos began to increase. With David HaMelech, as great as he was, certain things that happened with Batsheva, as well as being Makabalash and Har and the little things, with Shlomo HaMelech, adding on wives and money and the horses. There were avonos that added on to the kingdom from Binyamin An, from Sholem Alachan, and that was the Arab, that was the downfall of what would eventually be the destruction of the first base of Mikdash. I think you have to build it up first, but that's the idea, says the Orachayim HaKadosh. The Nitziv quotes something. Now, I'm, I'm not so sure how this goes. The truth is, you should know, when we deal with a wolf, I'm not positive what the Ze'ev was when it comes to the wolf in the Torah. Now, we think of a Ze'ev and you think of like a red wolf or a gray wolf, which are the two common wolves that you'll find in, in America. There are obviously European red wolves that are all over Europe, and those were, or they were once all over Europe. Nowadays, wolves are hard to find. I guess in some way, Baruch Hashem, I, I, I don't think anybody wants to meet up with them. But they're really easy. They're, they're hard. They live in very, very remote areas. Males and female wolves are in very, very remote areas. They don't find each other very often, and coyotes are everywhere. So there's, it's an epidemic almost where coyotes are mating with wolves and they're having these mixtures in which you can barely find, these scientists are finding that the wolves are going extinct, but not because of human beings. They're going extinct because they're mating with coyotes and just literally losing their genetic line in which there are barely any of them left. It's happening throughout Europe as well with other types of dogs, with other things there. I don't know what the Ze'ev exactly was when it deals with Eretz Yisrael, when you're dealing with what it says in the Torah, if it was referring to like what we know as a jackal nowadays, or if it's referring to an actual wolf, and the wolves were more widespread than they are today. I have absolutely no idea. But then Tziv quotes the wolf as being an extremely powerful creature, very powerful, that still is scared. It still has a fear of other bigger animals. A lion is a type of creature that has no fear. Absolutely no fear. It's willing to sit there on its prey and eat it and is not worried that anybody's going to take it away from him, except maybe other lions. A wolf will quickly grab and eat and then run away. Ze'ev Yitroph describes how the wolf does his thing versus how a lion does this thing. Sholamelech's life represented a wolf. He quickly killed. He was a quick king, but he was always scared of the people. If you've learned Navi, which I know, guys, but if you did, once, you'll know, Shola Melech gave in to the people, not once, not twice, but three times. 
three different times he gives in to the people and he does what they want and it cost him his kingdom. You're the king, Shmuel and Avi says. You cannot give in to them. You can't allow them to make a decision and keep the animals of all like alive. You're the king, Shmuel and Avi said to them. If I told you to wait seven times, seven days, I'm sorry, then you wait till the seventh day. Even if people are leaving you, don't worry about it. But you didn't listen. Three times it happens in Navi. The Shaul Melech listens to the people and doesn't. Davin Melech, no matter what the people are saying, when Michal goes up to him and says, how dare you dance like that as they brought the Aaron Kodesh in and he's dancing like a madman in front of the Aaron Kodesh, Michal says, what's wrong with you? You, you degraded yourself in front of the eyes of the Shvachos. And David Melech turns to her and says, I would do it again and again. This is why I was chosen over your father. Your father lost it. I was able to do whatever I was supposed to do because I'm a lion. I'm willing to do what I think is right even if it means that other people are not going to accept it. Shaul and Melech could not take that and that's the difference between Shaul and between David and Melech, between an Aryeh, a lion, and between a wolf. That's how the Nitziv understands it. I'm not going to go into all the Rishonim, but the Chizkuni, the Torah, the Bechor Shor, and the Torah more all say that Shalom Melech's kingdom was so short, it's like he grabbed it and he wasn't able to hold on to it, sort of like the wolf that was grabbing and then ran. David Melech was able to eat it slowly. In other words, his kingdom lasted over 400 years. So it's a difference, again, between that lion and the wolf, etc. The Rabbeinu Ephraim says there are nine words in this Pasuk. Ben Yamin Ze'ev Yitrof, Baboker Yochal Ad, Uval Erev Yechalik Shalol. Nine words in the Pasuk for the nine years, nine years altogether, in which we say that Sholomelech and his son Ishboshes were king. Sholomelech was king for two, Ishboshes for seven, and that's it. His kingdom lasted those nine years, and that's it. So he got nine years out there. The Torah more says it could be a reference to Eud ben Gera. We know about Eud ben Gera, the inventor, the guy who invented a knife that had the double-edged sword. He was able to destroy Eglon, the king of Moab. Maybe the Ze'evi trope is that he was able to consume Eglon, Melech, Moab. He was able to destroy him by using that sword. Maybe that's what it's referring to, and that's why it's over there. And it could be that it's referring to him learning Torah. We have no idea whether these Shoftim learned Torah or not. We find only hints in the Psukim, and it could be that this the AV trope really refers to the fact that he was able to swallow Torah. He was able to get more and more in, that he was such a Talmud Chacham, and that's what it means by the Cherub Pipios, the sword that he made. Although he made a double-edged sword, it really refers to the Torah being a double-edged sword that destroys all of our enemies and everything out there. Okay. Targum Al-Kazionus in Uziel says, nothing to do with the people of Binyamin. It has to do with the land of Binyamin. In the land of Binyamin, now this is interesting, Binyamin is right here, like right over here, right on top of Yehuda. Yehuda's land is all the way out here. Binyamin has this little space right over there. But the land is an awesome land. In his land is Shiloh, where the Mishkan was. In his land was Giva, that's obviously where Pelagish Begiva was, right above Yerushalayim. He also had a tail. Going into Yerushalayim, there was a tail of Binyamin in which his little strip of land included the Kodesh and the Kodesh Kedashim in the future base of Mikdash that David Melech would build. It was in the land of Yehuda, the land of Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim is in Yehuda without a question. And the base of Mikdash in Haram Moriah was also in Shevet Yehuda, except for one tiny strip of land, one tiny tail of Binyamin that went into there, and in that tail was the Kodesh and the Kodesh Kedashim, so that it actually was in Binyamin's land when the Kohanim brought the Korbanos or the Ketores, and they went into the Kodesh, they went from Yehuda's land into Binyamin's land, says the Targumel, that's what he grabbed. Binyamin's Zavi he was a wolf who grabbed the base of Mikdash. 
He took it on for himself. He brought the korbanos on the back. When we talk about Baboker Yochalad, he eats the food in the morning, referring to the Kohanim on his land, eating the korbanos. They divided up the different things for the korbanos to each Kohen at that night. That's what ended up happening over there. Maybe there was more time at night to do it during the day. The Rabbeinu Ephraim says, again a gematria. Baboker Yochal Adula Erev Yechalik Shalal is 12.55. Baboker Keves Ula Erev Keves. In the morning a lamb and in the evening a lamb. That there's two korbanos brought every single day, that's hinted to right over here. Rabbala Turim says, La Erev Yechalik Shalal is 8.10, it's the same as Eloah Korbanos with the Yud. Eloah Korbanos altogether. The Kuzari explains, this is in the, the Mimer Bays. He goes through and he says, the korbanos are the way that we connect to a Kaddish Baruch Hu. No one understands it. Just like most people don't understand the connection of the soul to the body. But somehow, korbanos are able to connect our soul to our creator. We don't get it, but it exists that way. And if that's true, if binyamin is the chalek, that's the area where those things were happening, where the korbanos were brought up, that he owned, the kodesh, the kodesh, Hashem, maybe even part of the mizbeach, if that really happened in his land, he was able to do such a thing. And he says, nowadays, says the Kuzari, we can do the same in our tefillahs. Our tefillahs are in lieu of the korbanos. We're able to do it in that way. And that's the concept. In fact, anybody who's heard a siyam at the end of Yoma knows a very strange Gemara. Anybody heard of Miriam Basbilga? If you've heard of Siam on Yuma, everybody says it. It's a crazy story. Miriam Basbilga was a Kohen's daughter who went off and married a Roman officer. When the Romans took over by the area of the base of Mikdash, Miriam Basbilga went to the Mizbeach and she kicked it. Now, it was made of stone, which is really dumb, but let's assume she didn't like really kick with her toes if she would have broken her toes. But either way, she kicked it and she said, Locus, locus, right? Locus, locus. How could you consume all of the money of Klal Yisrael? Locus, according to Rashi, is translated as wolf. Wolf, wolf. The definition of the Mizbeach that consumes the Korbanos is a wolf. And therefore, Binyamin's the aviotrope, he's a wolf that devours, means his land devoured the korbanos and brought them up to Shemayim. That could be the idea behind it. The Grizz says, both Targumi, there were two things that Binyamin was able to have, the Shechina as well as the Beis Hamikdash. The Grizz has a whole shot over here in this as well, where exactly it was based on Zvachim Nunjim Olam Many people know this Gemara in Tainas, Chafeim Abeis. My share, we haven't gotten there yet. We're, we're an Amud away from this. Rabbi Hanina Bendosa was accused of having his goats eat in other people's fields. The whole Kash Al Rabbi Hanina Bendosa had goats in the first place, but he had goats. And his goats were eating in people's fields. They were eating all the grain, all the grass in other people's fields. And people went up to Rabbi Hanina Bendosa and said, Your goats are eating the grain. Rabbi Hanina Bendosa said, Cannot be. There's no way they're eating grass that belongs to other people or anything that belongs to other people. It must be that it's hefker. It must be that it's eating hefker. I said, Rebbe, we don't know what to tell you. He said this. He said, if my goats ate anything that belonged to other people, then they should be eaten by dubim, which are bears, Syrian brown bears, right? If they didn't, if they didn't eat a thing, then they're going to come back tonight from the forest and they're going to carry bears on their horns. On their horns, they're going to carry bears. So I have a great book. I don't know if anybody has this. It's a little green, thin book with a cover. I don't remember who wrote it. Menachem Gerlitz, I think. It's called In Our Father's Ways. Does anybody have this? It's written, I think, in the 80s. In Our Father's Ways. It has the greatest pictures of all time. And I still remember this one, Rechenir Mendoza. It's got a picture of goats coming from the field with bears on their horns. And it is the greatest picture of all time. Like, the bears look shocked. 
absolutely shocked, as you would be if you were on a goat's horn being brought in from the fields. But every single one had that bear on top over here. Here's the problem. In that Gemara, Rashi translates bears. What do you think he says? We have bears in Tanakh. We have bears mentioned in the Gemara. And this is the only place Rashi does it. Rashi says over there, Dubim Ze'evim Shebesados. The wolves of the fields. Are there wolves not of the fields? Are there wolves that don't live in fields? And bears and wolves are not even in the same category. Forget about science. There's no way, they're, they're not even close to one another. Yes, they're both carnivores, but dogs and bears are nothing alike to one another. There is a, by the way, there's a stump. There's a one animal, the raccoon dog. The raccoon dog is a seriously strange animal, okay? That could very well be closely related to a red panda. That's close. And a red panda is quasi-bearish slash raccoonish. So it's possible. It is possible there is something there. But that's only for those who are, you know, animally inclined, we'll call it, okay? To say it in a nice way. Don't worry about it. You can look up the raccoon dog later. It's got another name as well, right? But that's one thing that could be out there. But I was worried. I, I look. I've always had this. So I have it underlined in my Gemara and Tainus. I have on the side, what in the world is Rashi talking about? Wolves of the field are not bears. They're not bears. What in the world is this referring to? So listen to this. Rav Chaim Knievsky was asked this question. Somebody went up to Rav Chaim Knievsky and said, why in the world are bears known as wolves in the field? Only Rav Chaim Knievsky would be able to tell you this. I don't know if there's any other Gon who has ever lived who has this type of Bacchus. I'm sure there is, and I'm sure somebody's going to say they're toppy courses, and I'm sorry. I don't know anyone who has the stories that they have about Rav Chaim. You know what they said to him, right, regarding Get? Get, get is... It's a famous line. The first toast, is, oh, second toast is in Gittin. I don't remember if it's the first or second toast is in Gittin. Why is it called a get? Because there are 12 lines in a get, and Gimel Tess is a gematria of 12. Right? So they ask the question, so they say, why not call it anything else? What about a B? Call it a B, because Yudbe is the gematria of 12. Why not call it a, I don't know, a Vav? Vav Vav is the gematria of 12. Why does it have to be a get, Gimel Tess? So they, the Grav famously said, and this is in the Panini Mishokan Grav, it's brought down from the Vilna Gon, that he says Gimel and Tess are the two letters that don't appear next to each other in all of Tanakh. Gimontas, don't appear next to each other in all of Tanakh. Okay, they said that to Rechaim. Rechaim Kiyaski has the Kasha. Why? There are four other letter combinations that don't appear next to each other in all of Tanakh. There are four others. You know how sad I am? I know this, and I still don't remember what they are. I have no idea. I think it's Zion Sadi and like Shin Samach. I don't remember. I have no idea. But like, there are four other letter combinations that don't <laughs> exist in all of Tanakh. So he said, why not call it all that? And he answers, well, this is the only ones, the Gematria of 12, and they're, right not, they're not right next to each other. Somebody asked Rukhan Knievsky, how in the world he knew this? How in the world could you know something like that? You know what he answered? He said, last time I went through Tanakh, I paid attention. There are 441 possible letter combinations, right, to be able to go through. And can you imagine? He's like checking them off in his head, and he's like, Faze, you're done. Faze, Gimel. <laughs> That's ridiculous. And he found four of them. I, I, if somebody could tell me that he got it on a computer, I can totally hear it. Rechaim Kanievsky didn't get it on a computer. It's be, by, beyond the craziest thing. I don't know if there ever was anybody like this. So here's what Rechaim Kanievsky says Targum Yonasan says in this parsha, in this Targum, Binyamin Shevet Takif, Binyamin is a strong Shevet, Kidiba Tarfe, like a Diba Tarfe, like a wolf that swallows, you know, whatever things whole. A wolf in Aramaic is a Diba. 
is a diba, like a dove. What Rashi's pointing out is that he wasn't saying that the goats should grab bears on their horns. The goats should grab wolves on their horn. He's using the Aramaic word for, for wolf, which is diba, not dubim. So it's a mistake in the shots that we have today. Somebody put in the word dove should have a dove on there. It wasn't dove. It was diba. It was a mistake in the Gemara. Some, somebody put it in there, and that's what he refers to. He says the same thing in Tzvanya Gimel Gimel. Everybody knows this Targum, where it says Ze'evi Arev. The wolves of the evening are called Dibi Ramsha. Since a Zion and a Dalit are interchangeable in Aramaic, a Zion and a Dalit are interchangeable, a Ze'ev can be a Diba or a Daba, a Ze'ev. That's what it could be. That is the greatest shot in Rashi that you will ever hear. I don't know if there's another shot in Rashi. I didn't look into, up enough in Tainus to be able to figure out. I just have it as a cash on the side of my Gemara. I've never been able to answer it. This is the most brilliant answer I've ever heard. I cannot believe it. Okay, I'm not going to go into the rest of this Rashi when it deals with Ad and Shalal. Maybe I'll do something a little bit later. Rabbi Yudah Saad gives an awesome answer that goes a little bit later as well. He says in the Mari, whatever, and I got a new safer. Somebody got me a safer called the Kol Rum about Ramosha Feinstein. He talks about how it's referring to a person who's younger and learns Torah. When he gets older, he can't do it. He has to teach instead. There's a Kedusha Slevi and a Meashiloch that is beautiful about grabbing the Kedusha in the world and being able to go through. But I'm going to end with this. Now, there's a Rabbeinu Bachai as well, by the way. But okay. There is a Rabbeinu Ephraim here. The Rabbeinu Ephraim is a Rishon. Rabbeinu Ephraim is a Baltosis. The Rabbeinu Ephraim was printed up, I, I don't know, maybe 25, 30 years ago. I, they found it in the Geniza. They knew the Rabbeinu Ephraim was, the, was a real safer because the Chidah quotes him often. The Chidah quotes him in this week's Parsha as well. The Rabbeinu Ephraim is an awesome, awesome safer. He says the following, and I'm going to be careful with how I say this, okay? Ze'ev Yitrof Baboker. Ze'ev Yitrof Baboker is the Gematra of 613, he says. Because Binyamin never sinned. That's the Gemara in Baba Basri Yadzainamalaf. Binyamin Lochata. Binyamin never sinned. He's one of the four people who never sinned. Amram Yishai Kilov and Binyamin Atzadik never sinned. So that's good. 613, never sinned. He continues on and he says the following. Okay? I want to be careful about this. I want to make sure everybody knows this. Okay? This is not saying what you think it's saying. And I want to make sure that I'm saying this beforehand. Okay? He says, there is a type of wolf called a werewolf that can change from human to wolf and back. That's how the Rabbeinu Ephraim puts it. Okay, he says, it's a muscle to explain Binyamin's connection to the base of Mikdash. He mentions four facts about werewolves in which he understands each one applies to Binyamin Tzadik. Number one, its legs sprout out from its shoulder when it changes from a human being into a wolf. That's number one. Binyamin is blessed later, Bink Sefav Shachain, that the Shechina, the base of Mikdash, was by his shoulders, the tail that came out, that's where the base of Mikdash was. Okay, that's number one. Number two, we have werewolves will not hurt you if you take ashes from a fresh fire. Pay attention, this is important. If you take ashes from a fresh fire and you spread them around you. If you spread them around you, it won't happen. In the base of Mikdash, they did the same around the Mizbeach. They did the Chumas Adeshen. They took the ashes. Some of it was spilled right outside the Mizbeach. Not to ward off werewolves, but as a form of Kedusha. And again, the same way that in the base of Mikdash, they did something. There's a sign by the werewolves where they do something that's similar. Number three, werewolves are born with teeth to show that they will consume the world. They will swallow the world. They're ready to take over everything. Binyamin caused his mother to die in childbirth, not because he was a werewolf and because he bit his way out. That's not what happened. It's because Binyamin also killed his mother. It's like he consumed her. 
So therefore, it's the same idea that Binyamin was like that. That has nothing to do with the base of Mikdash, obviously. A werewolf, he says, has a tail at all times. No matter, even if he turns into a human form, there's still a tail. He says Binyamin had a tail that went into the Chalik of Yudah for the base of Mikdash to be built. And therefore, when we're saying that there's something there, Binyamin's the Avi trope, he's referring to this Zaev, and he's saying this same thing idea over here. There is another Rabbeinu Ephraim. But I wrote a letter to Rav Chaim Knievsky years ago. This is in 2001. And I asked him the question and I said, how do you understand this? Is this referring to Drush or is it Remez? In what way do we understand this idea of Binyamin and werewolf? What does this refer to over here? And he wrote me back three words, Zesodo Satora. This is referring to the secrets of the Torah, which obviously is a reference to Kabbalah, which was a message to me that this is not something you should be doing. Okay? At the time, I was 21, and it was three words, by the way. I still have that little sheet of paper. I was going to bring it here, and I totally forgot because I went to a Shiva minute right before this. Suffice it to say, and all I want to say from all this, is I'm not going to try to understand what it means and why it's specifically mentioned over here, but anybody who tries to use this Rabbeinu Ephraim and the other Rabbeinu Ephraim in, an, in a way that seems to indicate something different, I will tell you, you're playing with fire. And that's not the point. I saw this quoted in a very, very weird manner in a periodical that went out not too long ago, about a year ago, that somebody had quoted it down. And I'll tell you, I, I didn't want to call the author, but I know the person was completely getting the wrong meaning from this. Because when you're learning Torah, there is a shot and there's an idea that comes from it. There are unbelievable ideas that come from this. And there are ideas that one can learn from this. But the point is not to say that Binyamin is referring to that he himself is a werewolf. That is never a point, and that is never something that somebody should be saying, because that's crazy talk, and that's a misunderstanding of, a, of an idea that is on a way higher level than any of us are able to be able to understand and to be able to give over to other people. That is not something that's there. But when somebody goes around and says that, and he's like, I heard Binyamin was a werewolf. You say to them, that is beyond the dumbest thing I've ever heard, right? And even if you think you understand a reason that says it, tell that person the next time that you give me an unbelievable shot on a Ramban on Beis of an Aleph and Baba Basra, then you can go on and you can learn that Rabbeinu Ephraim and tell me exactly what he's saying. But in that sense, I would tell you you're completely misunderstanding what it's trying to say and what it's doing over here. There's a Sefer HaChassidim that brings up something that's in Simon Kuf Pei Vav and then later on in Tuf Samach Dalet. There are things over there that are absolutely amazing. The Otzer Plos, the Torah, also brings down a couple stories that have nothing to do with this, but I think he wanted to add it on regarding this over here. But I think I want to add... Just to say this, the point of saying Binyamin is his Ave is without a question in Jush or maybe Pshat the Rabbeinu Bachaya referring to what's going to be with his children in the future and what the bracha is going to be for everything that he was involved with. What we learn from this is something absolutely amazing. And this Rabbeinu Ephraim, the Rabbeinu Ephraim is a Rishon that is very, very difficult to understand even when he's saying things that seem to be in Pshat and what he's trying to do. Very similar to the Rokach or very similar to all Rishonim. Be very careful when you think you have something crazy to say, and it is absolutely not what they're trying to say. I think that's what Rechaim Knievsky was sending me as a met in, in that letter to be able to explain to me what I was trying to get out of it because I was trying to say everything out of it. I think that's something that's a lesson behind anything you learn in Torah. There are so many layers. Don't get caught on that top layer. Go down to the 50th, 60th, 70th, 80th layer so you can understand really what Chazal are trying to say to you. Have a good job, everybody.